welcome to Season 6 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a fascinating journey into the lives of top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories many you've never heard before. During Season 6, you'll hear the likes of Pat Fitzgerald, Ron Rivera, Lisa Byington, Porter Moser, and many, many more. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow this podcast through our partnership with Sports Media Watch. You can find them and this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of the world-famous Chicago hot dog and a landmark institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by Dynamic Manufacturing, awarded the General Motors Supplier of the Year 23 times. This family-owned business can be found at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. This week we feature the best of season six. And it was it was chaotic, but it was awesome. And the only thing, again, I, I, I my own personal self health was not great. I don't hold back usually. I think you know, and uh, it's not always a good thing when you don't hold back. And I get to talk about the world champs, and I get to talk about basketball and I don't have to answer any questions about being a female broadcaster. We kind of went a little too far with the cops. Mike probably more than myself. I'm still a young pup. And anyway, next thing I know, we're in handcuffs. I am not a big fan of sports talk radio because people who listen to sports talk radio strike me as being anxious to be told what to think. And as soon as Jay walked through that door to go up on stage, you heard these people, the thunderous applause for him. And he got up on stage and he just started performing. As usual, an almost impossible task to pick the best segment, but we found six you're sure to enjoy. It was not the type of season Pat Fitzgerald was expecting. Northwestern began with an exhilarating victory over Nebraska and Ireland. After that, the Wildcats didn't win a single game. They finished 1-10, the worst of Fitzgerald's 17 seasons at Evanston. But it can't diminish the impact he's had on the program, witnessed 10 bowl game appearances. In this segment, Fitz remembers how he developed as a head coach after the sudden passing of Randy Walker and why he hasn't been tempted by the NFL. When I took over, I, I, I reached out to my, you know, Coach Barnett, Ron Vanderlinden, who was my position coach here, who wanted to be that coach in Maryland, and uh, a handful of other coaches, and they were all great. They were all unbelievable. And, and I, I know some for some people, when I say this name, you, you'll have feelings, and I can respect that. Uh, but Joe Paterno was was incredibly gracious to me. Uh, I was able to, you know, track Coach down, and, and uh, he was at his family place in I think the Jersey Shore or somewhere like that. And, you know, I just I just asked him for his advice, and he, you know, he went on, you know, a little little bit of a of a yarn, and and and, and talked about a lot of old stories, and went down memory lane. He started as a young head coach, but he kind of he he said something that stuck with me, a lot that stuck with me, but one that I acted on, and, and uh, in particular, he goes, ah, you know, those funny markers, you know, and I'm like. <laughs> The dry erase markers. He's like, yeah, you know, the ones that erase easy. I'm like, yeah, coach, I know that. Let's go grab one of those and take it home with you. And right, right on your, wherever you brush your teeth, I want you to write on the mirror, head coach, head coach, right, head coach. And I was like, all right, coach, I, I, I think I can do that. And he goes, great. And I go, well, why should I write that on, on the mirror? And he goes, when you stop looking at it, then you'll know you're the head coach. 
And, and what his what his point was, and, and he was right, is is that you know to your to your to your statement, which I, I appreciate the kind words, but you know you 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 have dream jobs, you have dream opportunities. You're never ever fully prepared or understand what the role is. And I you know Stacy tells story to a lot of people when we when we kind of talk about the first couple of years. You know we had just had our first child. I mean it was a lot going on. Um, and it was, it was chaotic, but it was awesome. And, um, the only thing, again, I, 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 my own personal self health was not great. I was not sleeping very well. I was, I, every book I read on leadership and management and every class I had and everything I was told not to do, I did. I micromanaged. I didn't trust people. I, I, I just, I felt like I had I had to prove myself. And um, when I looked at that for the last time on my mirror before I erased it, I went, stop to myself. I said to myself, stop acting like you have something to prove and start acting like the head coach. And I erased it and I kind of haven't looked back since. That's a great story. You know, schools have tried to lure you away, even some NFL teams. I believe the Packers in 2018 or after you, after you were named Big Ten Coach of the Year, why didn't you go? And not being 50 yet, yeah. is there still a chance you could go to the pros? Well, I, I this is where I want to be. Uh, I, and again, I, I think sometimes, you know, we we get uh, caught up in, in, in what's talked about and what's said about ourselves and what's said in the media and social media. You know, a good friend of mine once told me, never mess with happy. You know, don't get complacent, but never mess with happy. And, and um, you know, we, we are collectively not happy to be here. We are ecstatic and honored and humbled to be here. And, you know, I don't think you can ever say never because, you know, frankly, I'm the steward of the program. That's my job. And, and part of that is, is me working with our administration and me working with the university and our alums and our donors. And we've set a pretty high bar of expectation, our coaches, everybody, players, alums. Um, we've set a very high standard of expectation here, uh, not only on the field, uh, but more importantly, as people and in the classroom. And, you know, it's my job to make sure that I'm putting every piece of the puzzle we need in place to be able to be the best develop player development program in the country, to lead the nation in graduation rates, prepare guys for life, and, and, and compete and win championships. And, um, you know, I, I, as long as the support is where it needs to be, and we've got two fists in the fight to being able to do those things, there's no reason why I would ever want to go anywhere else. Um, and the generosity and support to our family and to our staff's families and our players, again, I've already mentioned some of those family names and many others that I didn't mention, I'm sorry, but uh, and the university and, and the administration have been incredibly supportive. So you know, my contract is tied to my seventh grader graduating from college. <laughs> you know, you look at the years I have left and uh, I'm ideal. And that was all by design. Um, you know, I, I think as he graduates college, you know, that's a time for, you know, I, I think Stacy and I have to kind of reevaluate where we're at in life. Um, and that's nine years from now. So that's a long time. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see where we're at then. But, um, you know, there's so many more things that we want to accomplish here. And um, once we accomplish those, I think we're going to want to raise the bar even higher. But 
Um, I'm, I'm very thankful maybe for some of those things you just said, but uh, it sure beats the phone call that coach, we're going to let you go and move in a different direction. So yeah, uh, I, I, I have a sneaking, a sneaky suspicion that's not going to happen. True or false. Someone once told me one of the reasons that you don't want to leave Northwestern is you would like to coach one, if not all of your sons. Uh, that is true. That is true. If they, if they, if they'd like to play for dad, you know, I, I, I think that would be something that would be really special. So wouldn't that be hard? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Real hard. Yeah. Real hard. And I also know there's a level of expectation on the, on my sons that would maybe potentially be unfair, but that's why I say if they want to, and, and those are the conversations that Stacy and I have had with our oldest son and we'll have with our middle son and our youngest son. First of all, you gotta be good enough in, in the classroom. <laughs> You better do well in school, boys, all right? <laughs> Otherwise, you're not getting into school here. Uh, and then number two, you better be a good enough player to be able to be someone that uh, can, can help our team. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't want to put I, – I, we didn't put – I didn't put pressure on my boys to play. Um, we've, we've really tried to diversify their palette of experiences from, you know, uh, we, we feel fortunate. We live in Northfield and in the public schools there at, at, at uh, Middle Fork and Sunset Ridge have been phenomenal. And, um, you know, we fundraised for the arts and, and uh, my guys have been involved in the band and an orchestra and in, in different plays. They're in the, in the chess club. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, you know, they've played every sport known to man and, and uh, pretty much. And, uh, you know, just want them to go find their path. And uh, if that means and leads here and they want to put on the purple and white and let dad yell at them, and then let's go have some fun. Paul Sullivan is one of Chicago's premier and most dogged reporters. A baseball beat guy for over 30 years, Sully was elevated to the Tribune's prestigious In the Wake of the News column. He's creative, but has gotten underneath the skin of plenty of people he's written about. You were once quoted by Bruce Miles of the Daily Herald after you were named the columnist for the prestigious In the Wake of the News column of the Tribune. And this is what you said, Sully, one of my specialties is pissing off people. Uh, I, I do uh, believe that I do that. I do piss off people. And sometimes uh, I do it on purpose. Uh, sometimes it's definitely by accident or by fate. Um, I think, uh, you know, being Irish is part of that. Um, <laughs> just, we just have a, a thing where we, we just say what's on our minds. And I think probably being from Chicago is part of that too. And when you put those two together, Chicago and Irish, it's, uh, I don't hold back usually, I think, you know, and uh, it's, not always a good thing when you don't hold back. Uh, I've gotten into it with more players and management that I could list right here, but just off the top of my head, I would say Andy McPhail, um, <laughs> Terry Bevington, Ed Lynch, Frank Thomas, Kenny Williams. Uh, I mean, you have a long list. <laughs> you can go on and on. And, and the funny part is that sometimes, you know, when the, the players' careers are over, they're, you know, we have good relationships and uh, Frank Thomas always said, uh, you know, you, the best part about uh, knowing Sully is, is uh, you know, when your career's over and uh, you don't have to listen to him anymore. So Ooh. back when I was a beat writer, I mean, now you're supposed to be opinionated. So it's, you know, 
part of the gig as a columnist. But when I was a beat writer, I was particularly opinionated, um, probably more so than I should have been, uh, especially when it came to, like, for example, Ed Lynch, who to me was a very bad executive and <laughs> did not do his job well. And uh, yeah, let me let me interrupt for you. He was also one of the most arrogant people I've ever met. Well, yeah, I'm glad you said that. But uh, yeah, he didn't like me very much at all, which, you know, I, I, I don't blame him, I guess, because I was writing nasty things about him. But then as fate would have it, uh, you know, I went on a rain delay telecast with uh, Channel 9 back in the day when they used to have writers on the rain delays. And I, I told him in the in the Cubs uh, media room at the lunchroom, uh, well, bad news, Ed, I'm, I'm going on during the rain delay. And he said, well, say nice things about me, Sully. And I said, yeah, sure. And I, I just went on and uh, said that he should be fired. <laughs> caused, uh, well, that I caused, think was a nice thing you said about him. <laughs> it was. It, it caused quite a stir. And my bosses were all upset because, uh, you know, you're the beat writer and you're advocating the firing of the general manager on the team's broadcast, which... You know, I mean, I was, I didn't like bring it out of the blues. Steve Stone and Chip Carey kind of goaded me into it because um, they they knew I did not like Ed Lynch and and that I I, I did believe he, he should have been fired. I, I wasn't just saying that because I didn't like him. Like, he did a terrible job. This was 1999, and he was fired eventually uh, the next year or two years later. I can't remember. So I, I you know, things like that happen and. Uh, I feel vindicated in the end uh, on things like that. But uh, as a beat writer nowadays, you're allowed to have more opinions. In fact, some sometimes they ask you to be more opinionated. But back in the 90s, uh, it was still kind of frowned upon. You also have had a very interesting relationship with a somewhat complicated individual named Carlos Zambrano, a material <laughs> former Cubs pitcher. Tell me a story I don't know about that relationship. Oh my gosh. Well, Big Z, as I called him, as you know, had quite a few incidents that uh, were beyond the pale, uh, you know, shouting, screaming, throwing things, smashing things with the bat. Lou's got to come out to keep his pitcher in the ball game. Well, he bumped him. Uh, you can't uh. do that, Carlos. Come on, Carlos. You got to be careful. He bumped him, and that might be a suspension. And he just throws the ball up into the bleachers. And so it was. It is my job to chronicle this. And uh, I, you know, I said, hey, you know, this guy acts like an idiot. He's a good pitcher, but he acts like a fool, and it's a bad example for kids. And uh, so one day uh, we were in Milwaukee, uh, right soon after they started the new park, uh, Miller Park, whatever it's called now. And we're near the batting cage and uh, he, he picked me up like, like a sack of potatoes and held me over his head. He held you over his head. I wish I had a picture of that. Oh, I wish I had a picture too. <laughs> Z, put me down. You're going to injure yourself. I'm going to get blamed. You know, this is when the Cubs were in the race. Uh, back then so they were still a good team and he he did put me down and we had a good laugh about it but he he also once up in milwaukee asked the uh, one of the security guards to that he told him he would pay him a hundred thousand to kill me you know that guy in milwaukee when uh, you said uh, you offered him a million dollars to kill me 
Yeah. Yeah, every time I go up there, he tells people, uh, yeah, this guy, Z uh, was going to offer me a million dollars to kill him. And they're all like, well, why didn't you take it? And I heard, if I, if I can go back to the time, I don't say that, you know. No. Because I can be dangerous. No. You know, we had some fun with each other. Everyone thought we hated each other because we did yell at each other uh, a lot of times and mostly because he was mad at something I wrote. But yeah, I actually liked him as a person. I thought he was funny. Uh, I just thought he was a bad example for kids. Uh, I remember, he get, remember he got in that big fight with uh, Barrett, punched him in like the dugout and sent him to the hospital. Carlos came off the mound, clearly frustrated. Michael Barrett frustrated. And a very heated conversation ensued. And unfortunately, Bobby got physical right here. Zambrano and Barrett. So the coaching staff had to get in between. And just complete frustration here from the Chicago Cubs. I mean, that was not good. And stuff like that happened quite frequently. But... You know, in the end, and I saw him a couple of years ago at a Cubs convention. This is, I think, before the pandemic. And, you know, we looked at each other like, well, are we going to talk to each other? And, and we did. And I interviewed him. And he told me that he, had, he was like um, a minister now or some type of minister. And he was like very religious. And he had totally changed his whole thing. And, and I wrote about that, and he sent me a message thanking me. I think it was on Instagram or some social media. And, uh, you know, now uh, I, I think we're okay now after all these years. Vienna Beef, two words synonymous with hot dogs. They're the home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog. Drag through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt. And oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks, cups, and socks, stadiums, museums, and zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and on Amazon. And remember, Vienna is not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. Lisa Byington is the first woman to be a lead play-by-play -play announcer for an NBA team. She's in her second season calling the Milwaukee Bucks. She was also the first woman to call a men's NCAA tournament basketball game. But she's declined to call herself a trailblazer, so I asked her how she describes herself. A broadcaster. And I say that, you know, I understand that I am a trailblazer. When I, when I say I don't describe myself as that, that's that's not denying the fact that I do understand that what I'm doing is, is helping open doors for other women who are coming uh, after myself. But I just don't look at myself that way. And, and George, if I did, I don't feel like I'd be able to do my job. 
I don't even look at myself as a female broadcaster. I just, quite frankly, I'm pretty boring. I look at myself as a broadcaster. Uh, I've told people that the most normal I feel in taking this Milwaukee Bucks job is on game day when I sit down, uh, usually next to Marcus Johnson, our analyst, and I put on the headset and I get to talk about the world champs and I get to talk about basketball. And I don't have to answer any questions about being a female broadcaster or being a trailblazer. Um, and, and that's the most normal it feels because I, I don't wake up every day thinking, oh, I'm, I, you know, what, what new doors can I open today? It's what do I have to do to get done to do the best job that I can do today? You can't look at yourself as that. You know, all the, all the wonderful people who have been first in, in whatever um, non-traditional hires in the past, they've never looked at themselves like that. They're constantly reminded <laughs> that people look at them in that way. But I, I would be surprised if, if anyone who has been fortunate enough to have given a door to be open to that, that not few, if any, have walked through, um, I'd be very surprised if they looked at themselves that way. Is a role model a fair description? Sure, I hope I am. But I hope I'm a role model to both boys and girls. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm quick to correct people when they say, you know, my, my, my daughter looks up to you. And I appreciate that. But I also say, I hope your son does as well. Um, George, I'll tell you one of the, the coolest messages I got last year when I did the NCAA tournament for the first time as a play-by-play. And the ball is tipped between Hartford and Baylor. The tip going to the Hawks. Here's Mitchell looking to take on. And the kick out here to Butler for his first look. The best three-point shooting team in the country starts out hot. Baylor advancing 79-55. to The final over the 16-seed Hartford Hawks. I got a message from a friend who was overseeing the, the Indiana College uh, state broadcast awards so that it was awards that were handed out to all the college students um, throughout the state of Indiana. And he said, I just want you to see this little video piece. And it was of a male college student who was at Ball State at the time. And uh, they had to ask, they were asking all these college students, who do you look up to? Who's your role model? Who's, you know, who's this, who's that? And, and he said, I loved watching Lisa Byington on the NCAA tournament this year. And it, I'm sure there's other uh, males across the country and, and little boys who, who have felt the same way, but that was the first time I heard it come across from a male college student's mouth. You know? Gosh, that, that has to make you feel great. And, and it, yeah, it did. And, and, and it took me back because I thought, you know, that's, that's what we're trying to get at. You know, um, one of my favorite sayings, George, and, and I'm sure you've heard me talk about it in some of my other interviews is just, I want female voices to become broadcast or to become background noise. So if, if a female announcer is on a men's game, eventually I want it to be background noise. I don't want it. I don't want people to have it on. And then they hear this female announcer on a football game or a men's basketball game or a baseball game or a men's soccer game. And they stop to try to figure out who the female announcer is because we never do that with male announcers. We always have uh, a lot of times we have games on just some background noise, right? Uh, as we're doing something else, but we always stop when we hear a female in a non-traditional role trying to figure out who it is. And so to have 
yeah, to have boys, to have men support you, gender allies is as important to the story as having females support you as well. It's interesting that you say that because I've always said that the best play-by-play people enhance the broadcast and that it's not always the background sound that you get because there are specific broadcasters who really help make a game. Even if it's a bad game, I think Kevin Harlan helps make a game. So I'm thinking to myself, do you really want to be that background sound or do you want to be that person known as someone who enhances a broadcast? Isn't it one of the same? That's the way I'm kind of defining it. Like you, I think a good play-by-play, and and maybe we're saying the same thing, but in different ways, George, but I think a good play-by-play is part of the moment, but isn't the moment. Mm -hmm. You know, the moment is the action that you're seeing. Sure. And and if you can be part of that and and in your words, enhance that, then I think you're you're doing your job. And so do you make that uh, a time where you let that be background noise and you let that just kind of be a part of your life or do you sit down on the couch, try to figure out who the announcer is and try to figure out how how much that announcer knows of the game, the sports knowledge. Do they do they know it first? Okay, check. It, it sounds like she might know it. Uh, then do you like her voice? Okay, yeah, okay, maybe check. Um, and then do you like the call? You know, like there are way more boxes to check for female announcers right now than there are for male announcers. Want to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know? It's easy. Just follow me on social media, at George Offman. That's O-F-M-A-N. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please follow or subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money at We resume with the best of season six on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. He was Mike North's producer during the early days of WSCR The Score, Chicago's first all-sports radio station. That alone should get Jesse Rogers into the Broadcast Hall of Fame, or fitted with a straitjacket. Now a lead baseball reporter for ESPN, Rogers remembers his days with North and some of the ways he had to procure guests. Well, a colleague can attest to that as well. Our good friend Bruce Levine, the longtime baseball reporter, saw this happen. Uh, the Philadelphia Phillies back in the day were a star-laden team, right? Darren Dalton, Lenny Dykstra, some other guys. And I was really good about going in and booking players, you know, as I tried to do with Bobby Knight. But I would go into the locker room, Cubs locker room, visitors locker room. One day, I booked Barry Bonds and Matt Williams at their peak back-to-back on the show. So I was feeling good about myself. The Phillies are in town, and Lenny Dykstra. Mike North asked, asked me to get Lenny Dykstra. So I go into the visitor's locker room. It's, it's at the, uh, after the game, long after the game. Lenny was doing something. Maybe he's working. I don't know. But not many people left in there. But Bruce Levine, our colleague, is in there with me. 
and Lenny's getting dressed. And as we kind of know, Lenny's an oddball anyway. He's not getting dressed. I say he's getting undressed. And I start talking, I'm giving my spiel, and he starts walking into the shower. And I'm like, oh, shoot. I mean, now I got to wait for him. He goes, no, no, keep coming. Come in here. Tell me, what do you want? What do you want, kid? Come on in here. So I follow Lenny Dykstra into the shower at the, in the visitor's locker room at Wrigley Field. Now, I avoided the water, but he's standing there taking a shower, and I'm saying, what time can you come on tomorrow? 2 o'clock, right. okay, 1.30? <laughs> and, he, and he came on. And Bruce couldn't believe it. And just to this day, him and I laugh about Lenny Dy- booking Lenny Dykstra in the shower. You also had the, um, the joy and the challenge of trying to interview or get Michael Jordan on the air, which, by the way, was not easy. No, it wasn't. Um, it absolutely was not. I, I booked him twice. I don't remember the second time so much. But the first time, it, sometimes you have to be more lucky than good. I mean, normally I would go to the game, talk to the player, book him. But trying to talk to Michael Jordan alone and figure out a time the next day, I mean, it's just nearly impossible. He's, he, at games and practices, being pulled in, in so many directions. But I kept trying to find that moment. It didn't happen. Well, one day, I'm at a restaurant, Bub City. I, I'm probably having dinner before I go to that game, early dinner, 4.30, 5 o'clock. It was late afternoon. I, I could have sworn there was a game that night. I'm not positive. There's nobody. There's not many people there. I, I can't know why. I don't know why I was there that early. There's not that many people in the restaurant. But Michael Jordan and, and his then wife, Juanita, are having dinner at Bub City about five tables over. There's no, nobody in between us, right? It's just me. He knows who I am, but he doesn't know me well. And I'm like thinking, I'm shaking my head right now as I go back, thinking, boy, this, this could be a big mistake going up to him while he's having dinner with his wife. And again, it was, it was so you know, late in the afternoon. I'm like, I, I think there's a game tonight. He's having dinner. He's going to go to the game. I decide this is it now or never. I go up to him and I do the whole apology thing. I'm really sorry, Michael. You know, I'm Mike and Mike and Dan's producers. Oh yeah, Jesse, what's up? I'm having, you know, he was nice about it. I said, I I never can get to you. Would you come on their show? They asked me every day to get you on. It's impossible to get you on. Would you come on? He said, I'll do it. He didn't come on the next day. He didn't come on three days later. It was about 10 days later. And every day, Mike and Dan are like, because I had told them, we got Michael, we got Michael. Every day, they're like, where's Michael? Where's Michael? <laughs> About 10 days later, via his guy, you remember uh, his guy was George. George, yes. Yeah, George. Still is his guy. Him. You should get him on the podcast. And um, <laughs> eventually, I'm like, George, Michael said he'd do it. I got to do it, or these guys are going to torch me. Michael came on. And then I think the other time we may have gotten him on when, when he was playing baseball for the White Sox, I think, because we did a show from out there, but I don't remember the second time. Finally, one more story. Please tell it about the time you and Mike were in a limousine and you were arrested. Boy, I'm surprised you didn't lead with that one, George. Um, <laughs> we had just interviewed Richard Dent for a TV show that Mike was, was hosting. And part of the deal for the TV shows, you get a limousine for the, for the guest and for us. We'd get in the limousine. Then we'd go pick up the guest before the show. Now we can loosen things up. We, we probably had some drinks in the limousine and get to know the guest a little bit more. Now, we knew Richard Dent, but you know what I'm saying? Like, get him ready for the show instead of just walking into a TV studio. We pick up Richard Dent. We do the show. And then eventually, we're having some drinks and drinks. We, we actually had some drinks with Richard Dent. We're definitely buzzed, but of course, we have a limousine. We drop Richard Dent off 
somewhere in, in Chicago there. And now we're driving on North Avenue back to the highway. And back then, there's a part of North Avenue, it might still be, that was pretty seedy. Now they've redone the bridge there, if people know. It was pretty seedy back then. I think you yeah, know that, George. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're driving, and there's a stoplight that you don't want to stop at normally. But there is one. It's just a, it's that weird stoplight that, you know, there could be trouble around the corner if you got out of, if you got out of the limousine. Well, we didn't get out of the limousine, but some ladies of the night came near came up to the limousine because they they probably spelled some you know some high rollers in the in the limousine right well it's just me and mike we're not really high rollers right and i can't remember if they knocked on the window or yelling at us but i do remember we rolled down the window because we weren't exactly sure what was going on it was tinted windows and everything and then we see it's i'll just say uh, prostitutes right and we did nothing but like just roll down the window and and i, I can't remember if they came up to the limo or whatever and cop cars just moments later came out of nowhere. I mean, they just came out of nowhere. My guess in hindsight is this was some sort of, you know, a trap. You know, you're, you're, they're waiting. A sting. For yeah, it was a sting. They're, they're just waiting for someone to roll down the window in a limousine and, and talk to some prostitutes. So everything was going to be fine. They took the women away and they're talking to Mike and I. And I think Mike would admit this now. We talked about it. We were both probably inebriated. Mike a little bit more so. And I'll include myself in the whole thing. There was a, you know who we are type of aspect to our response to the police officers asking what we're doing there. And so we kind of went a little too far with the cops. Mike, probably more than myself. I'm still a young pup. And anyway, next thing I know, we're in handcuffs and we're at the police station and we're in a cell all night long. Oh man! And instead of like calling our attorney and going home and sleeping it off, we get out at 9 a.m. We go right to work. We go right to work at 10 a.m. And we do our show. And no sleep, still probably a little bit buzzed. It came out in the news like 10 days later or something like that. The charges were dropped. We never even had to go to court. It was just thrown away. But it, it's salacious enough. It came out. And came out and I remember the old talk show host, Danny Bonaducci. Remember him, the Partridge family? Sure. He had, he had a show at night. And this is when Mike is big time. So it was, it was nothing. It was newsworthy, but it was no big deal in terms of us being in trouble. But I'm driving home at night, listening to Danny Bonaducci, who had also gotten to his own trouble over the years. And I remember him saying, ah, no big deal. Mike, you'll be fine. This will pass. Your producer might be screwed. He could be fired, but you're, you're fine. You're fine. I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> and I will say, when we had to go talk to our bosses, Mike took all the blame. And he's like, no, you, you, this is not on Jesse. This is not on Jesse. You're not firing anybody. And uh, Mike had the power to do that back then. And not that we deserved to be fired anyway. We did nothing wrong. Uh, again, never went to court, nothing. But it was quite the night. I never spent the night in jail until that point, and I never have since then. Greg Gumbel began his illustrious broadcast career in Chicago 50 years ago. He was hired by the NBC TV affiliate here and eventually evolved into what he is today, the host of the NCAA basketball tournament and one of the lead play-by-play -play announcers for CBS's coverage of the NFL. As we talked about him and the other famous member of the Gumbel broadcast family, Bryant, the conversation would lead into his distaste for sports radio. You know, I love that you and your brother, Bryant, growing up, in the Hyde Park neighborhood, and by the way, my wife grew up in South Shore, 
Really? Would grab your gloves, stand in front of a mirror, pretend you were announcers describing a game. It sounds like a lot of us in this business. Winding up and pitching and even describing the pitch is, <laughs> is ridiculous. And that's not the worst of it. The worst of it, my dear mom used to talk about how, you know, we had one of those hockey games where you slide the players back and forth. Mm -hmm. And well, and you, know, you spin it in order to, to take a slap shot. We had all six uniforms of the original six in the NHL. Of course. And, and we would... Game, divide the game up into three periods, but we would have one set of players from the Blackhawks on the ice against one set of players for the Montreal Canadiens. And we would keep goal scorers and assists. Second period, you change the identities of those guys to their second lines, and then the third period to their third lines. And we would cut, but that wasn't the worst part. For my mom, she would sit there and watch and shake her hands, head because my brother and I are both doing play-by-play -play at the same time. <laughs> the same time and nobody, nobody was an analyst here you were both doing play-by-play -play. yeah and you know and, and it wasn't it wasn't a far stretch for me to think you know she can't wait till my dad comes home and says wait till you see what these idiots did today <laughs> <laughs> i think it's very interesting to note that you and bryant never took a course in broadcasting and look at what happened you know i am not a believer that it's a necessity i mean obviously it's not a necessity I am a believer that it can help, um, that in a broadcasting course, you probably learn a lot of technicalities that, that, that I learned on the job, that I had to go out and, and, and find for myself. But my dad always, my, well, my, my, my brother and I have, have never shied away from saying that, that my dad was easily the biggest influence in our lives. And he had, he had three things outlined and he repeated them constantly. Think clearly, listen carefully, speak distinctively. And, and, and those tenets guide you well in the world of broadcasting, at mm -hmm. least in my, in my view. And, and, and I think that if you are able to think for yourself, to be able to, uh, to, to say what you think in a in, in, a, in a convincing manner without talking down to your audience. There are a lot of people in my business, George, who talk down to their audience. It's kind of like the approach of, I know everything, sit back and let me tell you what this is all about. Now, obviously there's an audience for those people and that audience doesn't have the ability to think for itself. I am not a big fan of sports talk radio because people who listen to sports talk radio strike me as being anxious to be told what to think. And I don't need someone yelling at me. I certainly don't need him yelling at me, but I don't need anyone trying to tell me what I should think about this picture for the California Angels, whom I can watch and for myself and make my own judgments. Um, but there apparently is a huge audience for sports talk radio. Now, if you're just tuning in, if you're just tuning in to hear people argue and scream and shout, that's fine. Good luck to you. Good luck in your early grave. Because I think <laughs> it's the most ridiculous thing on the planet. I have not heard more than 
in my lifetime, more than an hour's worth of sports talk radio. And most of it that I heard is basically the lead in or the lead out from an interview that I might have done on occasion. Yet, I, yet you, I, began, you began your career, or well, you didn't begin your career that way, but when you were in New York, you actually worked for WFAN. You did Morning Drive. I did. That's when I learned to hate it. <laughs> I, I, was, I was WFAN's first ever morning man when they first began the station. They asked me if I uh, if I wanted to do the morning radio, and I said sure because number one, I had mornings off, um, afternoons, and, and and some evenings. I would I was at Madison Square Garden Network, and I would be doing. Uh, uh, studio shows for MSG. In the evenings, I could be doing uh, Knicks basketball. Or I could be doing Yankee baseball. So I did those things. But it was it was something new and different, and I thought I would try it. And about three or four months into a three-year contract, I knew it wasn't for me. Because I'm not a guy who wants to sit there and argue. And yet, that's what the listening audience was. You know, hey, Greg. How about the Yankees trade Don Mattingly to the Mets for Daryl Strawberry? What are you supposed to do with that? And then number one, I'm not the decision maker. Number two, nothing that you or I say is going to influence that. And to me, that's useless. And people would call and they'd argue. And my, my, what I tried to do was get people who know the sport and, and would, would, would sit and talk with me and, and talk about what that team was doing. I had a guy who was a Yankee announcer. I had a guy who was a, a Mets announcer. I had a guy who was a, uh, a Rangers, an Islanders, a New Jersey Devils guy, and a Knicks and a Nets basketball analyst. Those kinds of things, we would discuss recent games, and it was usually the morning after a game, and that's the kind of thing that I would conduct. But in general, I didn't like it. I did not enjoy it, and I knew uh, there, there have been a couple of situations I've been in my career. I started something, and I realized after I got into it that I wasn't going to continue it or wasn't going to go back to it. Did you know General Motors 2021 Supplier of the Year is located in Hillside, Illinois? Dynamic Manufacturing not only remanufactures transmissions for the likes of GM, but also as a state-of-the-art facility. Its capabilities include engineering new or existing products, along with manufacturing, machining, logistics, and re-energizing used batteries for electric cars and energy storage systems. I've seen their operation firsthand, and their nearly 1 million square feet of operating space is extremely impressive. Dynamic was founded by the late, great John Partipillo in 1955 and is still family-owned and operated by the next generation. For more information about Dynamic Manufacturing, visit their website at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Dynamic Manufacturing. Honor the legacy. Pioneer the future. John Whiteman is in his 17th year as the radio voice of the Chicago Blackhawks. He didn't begin his broadcast career until he was 31, but prior to that, he was plying his trade as a bartender. Only the place he worked at wasn't known for libations, as it was for laughs. It was Zany's Comedy Club in Mount Prospect. Zany's Comedy Club was founded by Rick Hewitt in 1978. They have been providing stand-up comedy and big laughs for 40 years. I was uh, I was working a couple of jobs at the time, and uh, I, had, I had quit my regular job. It was in sales, and I quit that job because I just I, I needed to free up time so that I could do what I really wanted to do, which was become active reporting on sports in the Chicagoland area, particularly the Chicago Blackhawks. 
And so I worked it out with, uh, you know, my other employers. I had three jobs at one time. Okay. I mean, people think, wow, that's a lot. But when you think about it in a 24 hour time continuum, there's a lot of time in there to work. And I, I just, you know, since I didn't have a social life, I just filled up my extra time with, with work. And I actually found a way to save a fair amount of money because I was working a lot. You know, I wasn't sleeping a lot, but that didn't matter. So I met uh, the comedy club in Mount Prospect called Zanies. Uh, great people there. Uh, a guy who became one of my best friends was my boss. His name was T.X. Jones. And uh, God rest his soul, he unfortunately passed of prostate cancer right before COVID. Um, and uh, T.X. was good enough to hire me as his third bartender because he needed a third guy to you know pinch hit for the other two when they needed to go and do whatever they needed to do. Well, in time, one of the other bartenders quit and I got his shift. And so now I'm considered not necessarily full-time, but you know, almost full-time. Anyway, I'm working probably three days a week there along with you know, working at the other jobs as well. And uh, we had a day where our big boss came in and said, hey, look guys, um, a bunch of employees have been fired at Motorola out in Schaumburg. And Jay Leno has agreed to come to the club. In fact, he insisted on coming to the club and putting on a show, an exclusive show for those people who were fired. And it was right before the Christmas holidays. So these people were all let go. Well, the good folks at Zanies, I don't know how they did it, but they reached out to all of those families and they invited them down for a special night for them exclusively at Zanies. And the, uh, the guy that ran the comedy club, he came to us and he said, look, you guys are going to volunteer a night. Okay. This is the only time we're ever going to ask this, but this is for all of these people who have lost their jobs. And, you know, we'll, we'll find a way to take care of you. I thought, no, oh, whatever, you know, I, that's, I'll be happy to give up a night for somebody less fortunate, not a big deal. So we all came to work and it was a, I think it was a, a Monday night, which is normally the night when Zanies was closed. People start arriving, you know, and I mean, George, it was an onslaught all of these people. And the, the one thing that kept going through my mind was these poor people. I mean, here they are, their livelihoods have been taken away from them right before the Christmas holiday of all mm. times, you know? And uh, so we, we were welcoming to them and helping them to their seats. I mean, even as bartenders, we got out from behind the bar and we would shake people's hands and, you know, put our arms around them and say, come on, come on, come on in here. Let's have some fun tonight. Like that, take their minds off their troubles. So they all got sat and, you know, we got back in our positions to work and here comes Jay Leno through the front door and Jay didn't have an entourage. He came in kind of by himself and he comes in and he shakes hands with Bert, the manager and TX, my boss. And Bert says, okay, he says, he says, Jay, you're going to be on in 15 minutes. He says, he says, I can go up there right now. Jay was such a great guy. And so Bert says, yeah, go ahead. So all the people are in the room sitting and we're behind this wall. And the room where Jay was performing was in the area, the room behind us. So we couldn't really see him, but we could hear it. And as soon as Jay walked through that door to go up on stage, you heard these people, the thunderous applause for him. And he got up on stage and he just started performing. And he went for, I'm not kidding. He went for probably an hour and a half. And the laughter was, it was so loud. It was like, this is the loudest we have ever heard this club. And uh, the people that were in there, they, they got their drinks, they got food and everything was pretty much complimentary. I mean, Zanini's been over backwards for them. 
So Jay does that show. And he, he actually was going to do two shows that night for the same group of people. And so, you know, the, people, the folks sat around. Jay went for about an hour and a half. He comes back into the bar after it's all over because it's like the break in between shows. Now, I didn't know if Jay was a drinker or not. I don't drink. And um, Jay comes up to the bar. And I remember thinking that he was this guy that loved automobiles. And I thought to myself, the only way I'm going to get a conversation with Jay Leno is if I start talking about cars. And so I, he, Jay comes up to the bar and I shook his hand. I said, Hey, glad to meet you, Jay, John Whiteman. Nice to meet you. That kind of thing. I said, what can I get you? And he says, Oh, just, uh, just a water on the rocks. I said, okay, yeah, fine. Got him a water on the rocks and handed him the glass. I said, Jay, you, you like to work on cars, don't you? He goes, Oh yeah. I said, you know, I've got this problem with my car. I said, I got this. I think it's, I, I don't know if, if it's the fan belts or what it is. I said, but you know, whenever I turn on the heater, I get this awful noise with the with the belts like that. He go, he just kind of nodded. He goes, "Yeah, let me tell you what that is." And he went into like a fifteen minute dissertation <laughs> about how I could fix my car. Your car will never be more valuable than it was before you made the modifications. Sadly to say, hopefully you've kept all the original parts because you'll see some barn find that's been sitting in Connecticut for sixty years, all rusted out, totally untouched, bringing more than a heavily modified car. And this was pure Jay Leno. This is this is the, the unvarnished Jay Leno. This is the part that you don't get to in public because, you know, it, it's it's his passion. It's what he loves to talk about. And I I don't know, it, it, it may, have been, may have not have been 15 minutes, maybe 10 minutes, but it was enlightening, it was edifying. It was, it was me seeing Jay as he really is. And then he looks at his watch and he says, you know what, he says, if I get a chance to talk to you about it later, he says, I can tell you more. He says, but I got to go back in and do another show. I said, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. And afterwards, Jay comes in and he says, hey, guys, he says, listen, I'm going to have to go. That's my best Jay Leno imitation. And he says, <laughs> he says, but you know what? He says, I'd like to get a group picture with all of you if I could. And yeah, heck yes. You know, so we all jump in behind him and everything like that. And somebody somehow, I don't know where it came but from, but somebody produced a bag of Doritos. And so... Jay is holding the bag of Doritos because remember he was he was representing them. He had that was one of his sponsors, and he holds the bag of Doritos. We all get around him. We get a nice picture, and he shakes everybody's hands and, and uh, wishes us all the best, Merry Christmas, and all that. And he left. And uh, Bert, the manager, calls us together in the room, and he says, "Guys, he says, let me have your attention a minute." He's got a handful of envelopes in his hand, and he went around and he named everybody that was working. We each got an envelope, and that envelope was $200, and that was from Jay. And when we when we were out in L.A. with the Blackhawks in, in 2010, we went to Jay's show, as you may recall, and we had like a group picture with Jay, and before the picture was shot, I turned to him and I said, Jay, I don't know if you remember me, John Whiteman, I was the bartender at Zany's. And Jay looks at me, he goes, yeah, I thought you looked familiar. He says, I know, I met you someplace. He said, yeah, that was it. My thanks to our wonderful guests, Pat Fitzgerald, Paul Sullivan, Lisa Byington, Jesse Rogers, Greg Gumbel, and John Weideman. And thanks as always to TJ Reeves for putting this podcast on the map, Will Hatzel for his deft editing and mixing, and Nick Tochi for our wonderful graphics. Tune in next time for our best of year two on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.